I'll give you a little bit to get there. Ezekiel 36, 16 to 28. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, when the people of Israel were in their own land, they defiled it by their conduct and their actions. Their conduct was like a woman's monthly uncleanness in my sight. So I poured out my wrath on them because they had shed blood in the land and because they had defiled it with their idols. I dispersed them among the nations and they were scattered through the countries. I judged them according to their conduct and their actions. And wherever they went among the nations, they profaned my holy name. For it was said of them, these are the Lord's people, and yet they had to leave his land. I had concern for my holy name, which the people of Israel profaned among the nations where they had gone. Therefore, say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. And the second reading is from Numbers chapter 11 uh, from verse 16 to 29. Numbers is back towards the start of the Old Testament. The Lord said to Moses, Bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you, as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to you, sorry, have them come to the tent of meeting, that they may stand there with you. I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take some of the power of the Spirit that is on you and put it on them. They will share the burden of the people with you so that you will not have to carry it alone. Tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. When you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat, and you will eat it. You will not eat it for just one day, or two days, or five, ten, or twenty days, but for a whole month, until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it, because you have rejected the Lord, who is among you, and, and have wailed before him, saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? But Moses said, Here I am among 600,000 men on foot, and you say, I will give them meat to eat for a whole month? Would they have enough if, if flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? Would they have enough if all the fish in the sea were caught for them? The Lord answered Moses, Is the Lord's arm too short? 
Now you will see whether or not what I say will come true for you. So Moses went out and told the people what the Lord had said. He brought together 70 of their elders and had them stand around the tent. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and spoke with him. And he took some of the power of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. When the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but did not do so again. However, two men, whose names were Eldad and Medad, had remained in the camp. They were listed among the elders, but did not go out of the tent. Yet, the spirit also rested on them, and they prophesied in the camp. A young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' aide since youth, spoke up and said, Moses, my Lord, stop them. But Moses replied, Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Good evening, everyone. In case we haven't met, my name's Ben. It's my great joy to uh, be one of the pastors of Grace Anglican, particularly of this church. Uh, Keep your Bibles open pretty much wherever you want because we're doing a topical series. We're going to be jumping around. I'll lead us briefly in prayer and then we'll get stuck into it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you speak to us in your word. As we look at your word, we hear your voice. We pray that you'd keep us uh, away from distractions and hindrances to hearing your word, uh, to trembling and rejoicing at it, and to becoming more like Jesus on account of taking it to heart. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, it is absolutely right that as Christians, we have a special interest in the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Not least because he is God Almighty. We worship God, the Spirit, as we do the Father and the Son. Uh, One God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. But also because one of the more distinctive roles of God, the Holy Spirit, is that he takes the objective ministry of Jesus... And he applies it to the individual believer, thereby giving us the subjective experience of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and therefore knowing God as our Father. Uh, God the Father is often in the scriptures spoken of as the one who sits enthroned in the highest heaven and therefore in one sense is distant from us. God the Son completed his redeeming work in history 2,000 years ago and therefore in one sense is also distant from us but of course the father and the son are ultimately not distant from us because God the spirit indwells the individual believer uniting us to the son and therefore to the father to use the words of a great southern baptist theologian Millard Erickson The Holy Spirit is the particular person of the Trinity through whom the entire triune Godhead works in us. It is primarily through him that we experience God. It is through the Holy Spirit's work that we feel God's presence within and the Christian life is given a special tangibility. Now, that God, the Spirit, takes the objective truth of the gospel and makes it the subjective experience of the believer is an absolutely wonderful thing and I dare say any and every Christian will agree. 
But friends, like a lot of even very good things, it also has the potential to be easily misunderstood or even corrupted. You see, it's precisely because the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit creates such a personal, subjective and experiential facet of our discipleship that misunderstandings about his person and work can become grounds for fierce controversy, especially when the subjective experience begins to lose connection with the objective truth that God has revealed in his word. Now that, combined with the fact that growing in our relational knowledge of God is basically the highest human endeavour, is the reason we are absolutely right to think carefully about what the scriptures teach on the personal work of God the Holy Spirit. And so today I'm delighted to say we begin uh, a three-week mini-doctrine series that I've entitled The Advocate of Truth, The Person and Work of God the Holy Spirit. In the final week of this series, it's actually four weeks from now, we're interrupted by one week, uh, we'll be looking at the Spirit's work in sanctification. That is how he grows us in holiness and empowers the church for service. That's where we look at what are commonly called spiritual gifts. In the second week of the series, we'll look at the Spirit's work in Revelation, how he enables us to know God relationally through uh, making the Bible apply to us through the illumination of the Scriptures. And today, of course, we're looking at how the Spirit has worked to bring about our salvation, how he takes us from being God's enemies to being God's children by lovingly regenerating us and applying the work of Jesus to us directly. And so we start, point one on your outline, if you're a note-taker, by looking at God's promise of a permanent outpouring of the Spirit on all who would belong to his kingdom. In other words, we're starting back into the Old Testament before the coming, the final coming of the Spirit. Uh, one of the earliest hints that God would one day pour out his Spirit on his people came from the great prophet Moses. We heard it in that second Bible reading, in that weird little incident in the book of Numbers. You've got the Israelites who are wandering through the desert on the way to the Promised Land, and they start having a craving for meat. And whilst I consider such a craving to be thoroughly understandable, given that they were on a relatively short journey to a land that was going to be filled with edible animals, they should have been more than satisfied with the miraculous manner that God was providing them with. But just like us, the more earthly riches that God gives us, the more we seem to become unsatisfied with what we still don't have. And so it is with them, and so they wail, we are told, for meat. God, in his very righteous indignation, tells Moses that he's going to give them what they want, so much so that it will, quote, come out their nostrils. But amidst that judgment... Moses also realises that he's totally overwhelmed with leading such a big group of whingers. And so God tells him to gather a bunch of 70 leaders upon whom he will take some of the power of the spirit that is on Moses and give it to them so that they also together can share the burden of upholding God's word to the Israelites. Now, 68 of those 70 elders show up at the tent of meeting, they receive God's spirit in a partial 
way. Because you remember in the reading, we were told they prophesied but didn't so again. So they got a partial way. But two of that, 70, that bunch of 70 elders, for whatever reason, didn't make it to the tent of meeting when God poured out his spirit. And yet, and this is going to become much uh, really important later on, to demonstrate that God chooses not to limit himself geographically when he works by his spirit, those two extra men that didn't make it, who have the funny names, Eldad and Medad, they also yet start to prophesy. Now, Joshua, Moses' right-hand man, reckons this is dodgy. Those blokes weren't there when they were supposed to be, and maybe they are, are, are sort of, you know, being rebellious against the authority of Moses. So he says, Oi, Mo, make them stop. But then, far be it from Moses to get in the way of something that God himself is clearly doing. So Moses retorts by saying, Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And so Moses, the great prophet of the Lord, would have been absolutely delighted if a day came where all the Lord's people were indwelt permanently by his spirit, such that they could all carry the burdens of upholding God's word and enacting God's will with and for one another. In other words, Moses would have been delighted to see what we have here and now, what the church enjoys. Now, centuries after that, God promised that it would indeed become a reality one day, that he would pour out the Spirit in a final way on all his people. Here's the setting for that one. On account of their ongoing rebellion against God, God had allowed the ten northern tribes of Israel, remember Israel had split into ten northern tribes, two southern tribes, he allowed the ten northern tribes of Israel to uh, get conquered by the Assyrians and then scattered to all the different countries that the Assyrians had conquered. And then, because of their ongoing rebellion against the Lord, the two southern tribes, God allowed them to get captured by the Babylonians and taken out of the Promised Land into captivity in Babylon. But this created a problem for God because it meant that God's reputation as being holy and, and I think all-powerful was actually starting to come undone. You see, rather than God's name being hallowed, seen as holy and wonderful amongst the nations, Yahweh, God, was getting a bad name because all the other nations could see that his own chosen people had been booted out of the land that he supposedly dwelt in. You can imagine the kind of comments. What kind of a useless God is that? He can't even keep his own people in the land where he supposedly lives with them. And so God acts to restore his reputation. He promises that instead of having his law written only on paper or written only on stone tablets that he would remove the stone, sinful hearts of his people and give them a new heart of flesh and write his law upon those hearts. He would cleanse them with water, a metaphor for forgiving all their sins and their, their impurity, and he would write his law upon their hearts. He would turn them, heart and mind, to want to obey him. And, of course, he would do all this by permanently pouring out his spirit upon his chosen people. 
The letter, it turns out, would kill, but the Spirit would give life. I'll read again the words from the uh, second Bible, uh, first Bible reading, Ezekiel 36. Here's what God says. He says, regarding those dispersed Israelites, I will take you out of the nations. I'll gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. In other words, you'll be forgiven. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. That's a lowercase s. So spirit can, in lowercase s, it's just their, their mind, their attitude. I'm going to change your heart and mind. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. How's he going to do this? Well, I think the next verse, verse 27, and I will put my spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit, in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. So the promises that God makes leading up to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit actually show us what God himself had in mind for the role of the Spirit. And we can see already that in God's mind, the Holy Spirit would enable all of God's people to prophesy. That is, I take it, to speak God's truth to one another. You might even say speak the truth in love to build one another up and to bear the burden of helping one another live in accordance with God's revelation. And he would move us to do something that our sinful hearts previously were thoroughly incapable of. That is, he would enable us to live in genuine obedience to his word. Now, of course, given that Jesus is the Word of God, capital W, the fullest and final uh, revelation, personal revelation of God, then it simply has to be the case that anyone who trusts in Jesus as Lord and Saviour, anyone who obeys Jesus, only does so because the Spirit has now permanently come upon them and it has changed their rebellious heart. Not surprisingly, that's pretty much what we see happening on the first day that God began to pour out his Holy Spirit upon a whole bunch of, what do you know, dispersed Jews who had yet come together for the festival of Pentecost. Now, I'm going to guess that many of you will know this story. Uh, you've probably read Acts 1 and 2, but if you haven't, here's the super cheat version. Jesus had been crucified to successfully pay the price for all our sin. He had been raised bodily, bodily resurrection, to show that he was indeed God's chosen king. And then he ascended into heaven. How do we know this is all legitimate? Well, back in the day, when a new victorious king ascended the throne, customarily he would give gifts to all his people. You see, he would have conquered a rival kingdom, taken all their stuff... And then now that he's ascended the throne, he would give it out to the people of his kingdom. And that's basically what happens on the day of Pentecost. Jesus' 12 apostles, you might remember, they were cowering in some upstairs room and all of a sudden there was a sound like a rushing wind and the spirit, represented by tongues of fire, we're told, came and rested upon each of them. And then they did what the spirit usually inspires, namely speaking the words of God, in this case in different languages, that all the Jews from all the nations under heaven could understand. Some people, very weirdly, and I don't know how this came up, but some people very weirdly accuse them of doing some kind of drunken party trick. And so Peter, the head apostle, who a few moments before this was terrified, 
now very boldly stands and preaches, frankly, one of the best sermons ever preached outside of what Jesus did in the Bible. And you can read that sermon in Acts chapter 2. Very important part of the Bible to read, Acts chapter 2. The gist of that whole sermon is this. The very super overly condensed version is this. Jesus is the Christ, and by believing in him, you can have your sins forgiven, be united to God by the Spirit, and have everlasting life. That's pretty much the condensed version of Peter's great sermon in Acts chapter 2. It is not a sermon about God the Holy Spirit that Peter preaches. It's a sermon enabled by the Holy Spirit who points people to Jesus, thereby giving salvation in his name. The pouring out of the Spirit is done in this case as a proof that Jesus has in fact ascended the very throne of God and is therefore the saving Lord and Christ. Jesus had won the salvation and the kingship and in pouring out the Spirit, he was actually giving that gift of what he had achieved to all those upon whom the Spirit came taking what he had accomplished and giving it individually to us. At the very end of that sermon, Peter said, Repent and be baptised every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and all your children, all who are far off, for whom the Lord our God will call. You see, it's not partially for 68 elders plus two who are a little way off. It's for all that the Lord will call, near and far off. It's total. It's for anyone who will call on the name of the Lord. Salvation, the forgiveness of sins and the ability to start walking rightly with the Lord goes hand in hand with the outpouring of the Spirit. Is that the first thing you think of when you think of the role of God, the Holy Spirit? Enabling salvation, enabling repentance, turning us in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, by the way, if you're here this evening and you haven't yet repented and been baptised in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins well, then there is always the possibility that the Lord is calling you right now, as evidenced by the fact that you've decided to show up here tonight. If you know that's you, if you sense that that's you, for goodness sake, don't put it off. Come and speak to me afterwards. Write it on that connect form that Gav will tell you about afterwards. Say something like, I want to become a follower of Jesus. Do you know that I have no theological qualms whatsoever with doing an impromptu baptism. If someone said to me, I understand who Jesus is and I want to accept him as Lord of my life and Ben, I want you to baptise me, well, I'd do it. I mean, I'd get a bit of mess on the floor, whatever, but, but, but that would actually happen. By the way, I'm delighted to say that uh, one of our dear own actually did that this morning. Uh, that's Alison, what, 10 o'clock this morning? Uh, decided to publicly declare her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ uh, as someone who has received forgiveness in his name. What a wonderful thing. I just asked her to send me the photos because I couldn't be there and so I could make an announcement. Praise God for you, dear sister. But not only does God the Spirit change our hearts such that we can recognise the truth of the ascended Christ and find salvation in his name, he also, by the very fact of his indwelling, gives us absolute assurance of our complete salvation. 
You see, he guarantees our eternal inheritance, for he is what the Bible will call the seal of our salvation, the big stamp that says it is done. Here it is, right from the source, the Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writes, Now it is God who makes both us, that's the Apostles, and you, the Church of Corinth, stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. Anointed means covered, have something poured on you. He anointed us. He set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. See, it actually guarantees your future. See it again, Ephesians chapter 1. And you, Gentiles, were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. The point is very simple and very clear. I could have chosen more parts of the Bible to get this, but I just chose to. But the point's clear that God the Spirit indwells us uh, and therefore is not only the cause of salvation, but also the guarantee, our, our assurance of being united to God permanently. Uh, in a room this size, with this many people, there's always a pretty good chance that at least one person, and frankly probably more than one person, actually need to take this to heart pretty seriously. Perhaps your laxity towards God's word and prayer makes you feel sometimes like you're a bit of a fake Christian. Uh, perhaps this week you've messed up again, whether in a minor way or a major way. Perhaps it's with anger, with cowardice and failure to take responsibility. Perhaps it's with pornography. Perhaps it's with trashy reading or so-called romantic novels. Perhaps it's your consumption of alcohol. Perhaps it's the greed you harbour, which we all know is idolatry. Perhaps it's with flagrantly disobeying the road rules, disappointing your spouse or family or friends on account of your selfish words or choices. It can be so easy to feel like a failure. It can, easy, it can be an easy thing to think, you know what, I'm the odd one out. I'm not like all the other Christians who are always doing better than what I am. Or perhaps it's something even worse or more scary. Perhaps it's something like this. You know, living with Jesus is too hard. It sucks. I want to give up. I feel like giving up, chucking in the towel. I want to run away and hide. I want to get away from Christian people because it would be too awkward and embarrassing. So I'm just going to go and become a hermit. Well, do you fit in any of those sort of things? Maybe even this week. And if you do, the question I ask you is very simple. Are you happy to declare that Jesus is Lord? Do you think Jesus is the boss? And do you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? Are you convinced that he was raised from the dead? If the answer is yes, then consider again what his spirit makes certain. I'll highlight some of it. God himself, God himself considers the indwelling of his spirit in the individual believer as his own personal down payment. His own deposit, giving him ownership of the saved sinner, both now and for all eternity, guaranteeing what is to come. His spirit not only saves us, but guarantees that our salvation is absolute. 
you have no reason to be afraid. The very fact that you feel inadequate in terms of your godliness is actually one of the things that God the Spirit does to those he indwells anyway. If the risen King Jesus gives you the gift of his Spirit, then it's a gift for life. He knew all the sinful things you would do in your whole life. He knew them before you were born, just like he did with me. He knew all the fails that you would make. And he knew that from, you know, eternity past. And he chose to give you his spirit, which is a guarantee of your eternity with him. I've been a Christian 22 years. Periodically, I still catch myself marvelling at the, what I can only call, awesome, A-W-E, awesome wonder that God would give such a gift to me. As an angry Jewish atheist who loathed and despised those dumb Christians, there's no doubt in my mind that it had to have been God who changed my heart and turned me to Christ by his spirit. I'd have never done that by myself. And I'm glad it's his work and not mine. If it was mine, I'd stuff it up. But if God makes the down payment, there ain't any possibility of that ever being stuffed up, is there? Friends, God, the Holy Spirit, applies Jesus' work to the individual sinner. And this results in absolute salvation, the guarantee of eternal life. It can be easy to get ahead of ourselves when we think about the person work of God, the Holy Spirit. Uh, but if you don't start here, all the other stuff is really, you're getting ahead too much. Right? You've got to see, this has got to be the first big deal that sort of comes to mind when we think of the Spirit. He applies Jesus' work to the individual sinner and that results in absolute, guaranteed eternal life. And of course, this has huge implications for us as the church, but of course, uh, for the time's sake, I'm going to choose two big ones and spend a bit of time spelling them out because I think they're quite relevant to us in the here and now. Firstly, it's important to realise that there is always an inherent danger in apologetics. Well, well, what's that been? What? Danger of apologetics? What are you talking about? Apologetics sounds like the word apology. But it's not. It comes from a Greek word, apologia, that means to make a defence. And it's a very good and important thing to do for Christians. You see, you proclaim the good news of the risen Jesus, and some people might hear it and go, but I disagree with it because, and then I'll attack the gospel, I'll attack the revelation of God. You know, what about this? And then you might then defend the gospel. You'll make an apologia, you'll make a defence for the gospel. That's apologetics. Uh, you might remember from a few weeks back in our uh, sermon series in Acts, we heard about that guy, Apollos, who we're told vigorously refuted Jews in public debate. Mind you, it also tells us in that same chapter that that was to benefit not those unbelieving Jews, but to benefit those who were already saved, the church, who were really spurred on and encouraged by this guy, you know, sticking it to the, the naysayers. You see, it can be very tempting to think that if we get some really good argument to, to counter whatever's blocking someone from, from coming a follower of Jesus, that once we, we show them they're wrong with whatever that, that good argument is, well, then they're going to get saved. They're going to turn to Christ because we removed the blockage. We can e easily, therefore, get tempted into thinking that you can sort of 
argue someone into the kingdom. But of course, it is God the Holy Spirit and God alone who applies the merits of Christ and unites us to our triune God. He alone changes the heart. There is a great limit to the power of apologetics. So far more than apologetics, we're much better off preaching the gospel, the word of the Spirit, not the defence of his word. We are to set the truth forth plainly rather than defending it. As a matter of fact, you've got to have a truth set forth before you can actually defend it. A lot of people out there seem to think that it's really helpful just to sort of smack down arguments that, that go against the gospel. We're actually proclaiming the gospel. So if you want to see people saved, first of all, pray like mad, and I'm going to get to that in a minute, but secondly, don't learn good apologetics first. Learn good gospel presentation first and stick with that. Sadly, friends, even in our Sydney Anglican circles, which by and large are very good, but even there, there's a number of influential movers and shakers who seemingly keep wanting to win the world for Christ by downplaying some of the less popular truths of the gospel and the truths of God's word, and with great intelligence and PhDs, thinking that they're going to win the culture by showing how well Christianity meets the felt needs of our world. Now, there's very good motivation for, for some of that. But you've got to remember, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth who the world cannot accept. That's what Jesus calls him, John, 17, uh, John 14. So if anything, these so-called apologists actually end up kind of working against the Spirit. If you keep downplaying the gospel to make things more palatable for everyone else, you're actually going against the Spirit. You're not going to save people. There is a place for showing how the gospel addresses the felt needs of our culture. But it can easily be given too much of a place. The gospel isn't so much, by the way, about transforming culture as it is about actually taking people out of culture and into the kingdom that is not of this world. Give apologetics some time, but don't give them too much place. Uh, lastly, if ever there was a reason to assert that evangelism is useless without prayer... It would be the fact that the Spirit enables salvation alone. No doubt many of you guys are familiar with, John's, uh, sorry, with uh, Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Uh, here's how it goes. I'm going to explain it along the way. But uh, now that we've got Ezekiel 36 in the background, and hopefully some of you guys did this in your growth group this week, there'll be a couple of extra things that you might notice. Here's how it goes. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, which is a really good sign because it means he's terrified of what he's Pharisaic friends will think that he's interested in Jesus. If you get someone who's terrified of what their friends will think, that's really good. It means they're probably actually interested in Jesus. Could be the spirit working in them. He comes to Jesus, starts a conversation softly. Jesus goes all hardcore. Verse uh, 3, Jesus says to him, Very truly, Mr Nicodemus, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now, Nicodemus does get things wrong, but he is not a dummy. And what he says in verse 4 isn't a stupid thing. He says, how can someone be born when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Yes, he knows physics and biology. But what he's actually saying is, Jesus, you said I'm going to be born again to get in the kingdom of God. In other words, I have to be as innocent like a baby. And there's not a person in this room who can't look back on their life and wish that something somewhere was different. Anything you've said or anything you've done, and you can't undo it. 
the bad thing you've done, the bad thing you've thought, whatever it is, you can't undo it. How's it possible to be pure enough for the kingdom of heaven to kind of start back at square one, to enter your mother's womb figuratively? That, that, that can't happen. But of course it can happen. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of <clears throat> water and the Spirit. I remember, Nick, you know, Ezekiel 36, God said, I'm going to cleanse you with water and put my Spirit in. You can have your slate wiped clean. You can be considered pure in the sight of God because of God's work by the Holy Spirit. And so he continues... Verse 6, flesh gives birth to flesh, yes, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. And then he says a really weird thing right at the end. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound but cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. Did Jesus lose a plot here? No. I reckon even in this room, there. well, I know that there are at least some people who can tell me what the wordplay is happening here with wind. Does anyone know? Who can tell me? What's the wordplay going on with wind? Spirit. It's exactly the same word, right, in Greek? It comes from the pneuma word group, right? It means spirit, it means wind, it means breath. It means spirit, it means wind. It's, it's the same word. Same in Hebrew, would you believe? Ruach, spirit, wind, breath, right? Jesus is basically saying you can be born again, Nick. You can have all the stuff wiped away. But it takes the cleansing work of God, the Holy Spirit, and you don't know where and when he's going to come and strike. You don't know where that wind is going to blow. So if you want to see someone saved, don't do what sadly a lot of churches try to do, which is try to do some ritual that strong arms God the Holy Spirit into doing something, which is absolutely stupid because it's saying, you know, God, you're going to have to owe me a debt if I do this thing. It's unbelievable. You've got to say, hey, God, please blow on that dude, on that girl, right? Go there. Please, God. That's the kind of thing that we learn. So if you want to see someone saved, for goodness sake, the number one and the number ten step and all the ones in between is to pray. Prayer is the most important part of evangelism. Now, for the very last thing I'm going to say, you're going to think I'm going to contradict everything I just said. <laughs> but not quite. There is one thing apart from prayer, you can do in the hope of seeing others saved. Because the Spirit does blow where it wants. However, all throughout the New Testament, there is one consistent observation that we can see, uh, and that is that the Spirit moves or works when the Gospel is preached. That's the one exception, when the Gospel is preached. Not when apologetics are given, when the Gospel is preached. That's when the Spirit works. Pray like mad and every now and then preach the gospel. That's how you see people say. That's enough for me. Let me conclude in prayer. We might have a question time. I don't know how long I've gone, but uh, it's up to Gav. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you uh, for the personal work of God the Holy Spirit, that he brings to bear in us the victory that Christ has won at the cross in his resurrection, that he turns us in repentance and faith and enables us to go from walking in death to walking in life. Heavenly Father, we pray earnestly for those known to us who as yet have not been turned in repentance and faith, that you in your mercy would come upon them by the Spirit and enable them to turn and repent in the name of the risen Lord Jesus Christ and find forgiveness of sins in his name. Heavenly Father, please forgive us for the times that uh, we might have been tempted to strong-arm the Spirit or ignore the Spirit. 
help us instead, Heavenly Father, to worship him and glorify him as God, to listen to him uh, through your word and to see others come to know Jesus through his ministry. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.